All right. Well, good morning. Good to see you guys this morning. Today, we're in two sections of Scripture, Acts chapter 6 and 1 Timothy chapter 3. We'll begin in Acts chapter 6, so if you want to turn there and then mark 1 Timothy chapter 3, we will move there halfway through. We're answering the question this morning, why are deacons needed and what do they look like? first answer comes from Acts chapter 6, or the first part of the question comes from Acts chapter 6, and the second part from 1 Timothy chapter 3. So hopefully you found your place. I'm going to read Acts chapter 6, and then we will, we'll work through 1 Timothy 3 when we get there. But just to give us some context, we're going to look at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. It says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number... A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, and a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. If you bow with me in prayer. God, we thank you for this day and this opportunity to gather here as the church, Lord. We're thankful for the many blessings that you have poured out in our life. We're thankful for our Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and we're thankful that, that we are able to freely gather together to open your word and to learn from it. And I ask that we would do that today, God, that you would help us to come to this passage with open hearts, and with open minds, Lord. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as many of you know, you know, we just moved to Red Oak and a couple of weeks back. And prior to that, Jen and I, we spent countless, I mean, countless hours looking at homes online. And then we would go and we would view those homes. And believe it or not, there are not too many people who are going to buy something sight unseen, especially when it comes to a home. And so being in the home, actually going and stepping foot in that home, what was a key part of the process. There will be many times that, that we liked a home online, only to discover that, that when we got there, that we, it's totally not going to fit our family. This is not going to work at all for us. And thankfully, after countless hours, thankfully after a, a couple of offers later, we landed on a home that worked best for our family. And, and, and out of all the homes that we toured, the, the home that we bought we spent the least amount of time in during that process. We, I think we spent about 30 minutes in that home and we made an offer that same day. And there's some other outside circumstances and things like that, that that forced us to make a decision that quickly. But we were able to make that decision because we knew what we were looking for. We knew what we needed. We knew what qualities were going to serve our family well. We didn't, have to fi- we didn't figure this out overnight but we figured this out through a process of looking at homes online, going and viewing them in, in person. It was this process that, that took us, but we finally got there. 
And just like we, we came to this understanding of what our family needed in a home, we must come to an understanding of what our church needs so that it will operate in a way that glorifies God. Now, last week, we looked at what our church needs in a pastor. We saw that, that one of the main jobs of a pastor from Ephesians chapter 4 is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And this week, we're going to look at the office of deacon. And I believe, I believe it is important that we look at this office. I believe that it is important that we understand what a deacon looks like and who is qualified to be a deacon. And I say that because the, the office of deacon, you know, has, has really been grossly misunderstood in the church at times. And, and sometimes this, this is the case in Baptist churches. You know, I can't tell you how many stories that I've heard from, from pastors in, in different groups that I go to, uh, from my time back in seminary, and even my time in seminary now, uh, of people who, who really should not serve the church as deacons. And I even have a few stories myself. Or, or you hear of deacons who, who don't really deacon, and we're going to talk about what that means here in a moment, but, but they, they, they actually act more like a board of directors who, who decides what, what's going to happen in the church and, and what's not going to happen in the church. In many Baptist churches, and in many churches, you know, deacons are the ones who essentially run the church. And we're going to see here in a moment that, that really that, that's far from the scriptural idea of what a deacon is supposed to do. Second, we need to know what deacons look like because, you know, it's the church that selects deacons. You know, just like the church selects a pastor, the church selects deacons. We see that happening in Acts chapter 6. And so we need to know what we're looking for if we're going to be people who are selecting deacons. And so why are deacons needed? Why? What should we look for? You know, thankfully, we don't have to go to a bunch of churches around town and, and really discover, you know, how deacons are operating in those churches, what, what they were looking for in those churches to figure that out. We have the only source that we need. We have God's Word here. And we must allow God's Word to guide us, right? We, we can't allow the church down the street to determine how we're going to select deacons. We can't, you know, allow our own tradition to determine how we're going to operate. Instead, what we have to do is we have to allow God's Word to determine how we are going to operate. Now, I'm going to tell you up front uh, that God's Word does not always agree with our Word. And, and, and as I wrestled with these texts this week, you know, there were some changes that I had to make in my understanding uh, of this. And so I'm going to say, just right up front, there might be some things that you don't agree with that I say this morning. But let me just challenge you to look at God's Word as we're going to do this morning. Begin to process what God's Word has to say. Think through God's Word. Pray through God's Word. You know, we all come to God's Word with different presuppositions or our idea of, of how things should be. If, we're been in, if you've been in church for, for any length of time, you, you, you probably have an idea of what deacons are supposed to do, what qualities they're supposed to possess. Some of those ideas might match Scripture. Some of those ideas might, ma might not match what Scripture has to say. And where our presuppositions, where, where our own ideas, where our traditions don't match God's Word, we don't change God's Word. Instead, we allow God's Word to direct how we are going to think about things. And so we have to let God's Word 
do that. We must submit to God's word. And when we do, things generally go well for us because that means that we are operating in the way that God has designed for us to operate. When we don't do that, when we go off and we say, no, I know best, God. I'm going to allow my, my own ideas, my own tradition to direct how we should do things. Well, that's when we get into trouble. It's when I have my pastor friends come to me and they begin to tell horror stories of how things are functioning and how things are working in their church. That's when disunity occurs. That's when we are hindering our mission to the community. That's when we're not making Jesus' name famous. And anyway, and then we're not making disciples. We're not on mission as a church. And so if we're going to be on mission together, we need to know, you know what deacons look like. We need to know why we need deacons. And so why? Why are deacons needed? What should they look like? We're going to begin with the first of those two questions. Why are deacons needed? Now, as you work through the book of Acts, you see that after Pentecost, Peter's speech at Pentecost, the church grows rapidly. There are a lot of people who are added to the church. Thousands are added to the church. And as, and as that community gathered together underneath the word of God in Acts 2, 47, we see that they are being taught God's word and that people are daily being added to the church. Even though they were persecuted, people stayed, people remained. The church began to grow and it continued to grow. But that growth and their unity was about to be put to the test. Not, 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 not through outside persecution, but from the inside. So look at verse 1 of Acts chapter 6 with me. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in numbers, so they're growing, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now the Hellenists, th these are Greek-speaking Jews as opposed to you know, the Aramaic-speaking Jews of, of the Hebrews. Their language, their culture, uh, they, they, were, they were different. And just like today, we typically gravitate towards those who, you know, we're, we're more alike. That's what's happening in the church. You know, the, the, the Hellenists are kind of gravitating towards themselves. The Hebrews are gravitating towards, towards themselves. And while the church was experiencing rapid growth, there seems to be some administrative problems that arose. You see, the Hellenists, they, they came to the apostles and they began to complain. They said, look, you know, our widows, they're, they're, not, they're not getting their portion of the daily distribution. They're either getting less or, or maybe they're just, you know, getting left out altogether. They're just being overlooked. And they, they think this is something personal. They're like, man, these, these guys, they don't like us. They, they've never liked us. And so this dispute arises among these two groups. And anytime there's a dispute among two groups, even time, anytime there's even a dispute among two people, that, that's not a good thing, right? That causes disunity in the church. And so the apostles, they, they see this taking place and they said, you know what, we, we need to do something about this. We, we've got we've to bring things back together. We, we need unity in the church before there is a church split that is about to happen. And so they decided, yeah, we've got to do something. And so look at verse 2. We're going to see what they decided to do. And the 12 summoned the full number, these are the 12 apostles, full, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry 
of the word. And so they decided that they were going to appoint some men who met certain qualifications to, to handle the daily distribution of food there in the church so that they might serve the people. And they decided to appoint these people so as not to take away from the role that God had given them, right? They said, look, we are going to devote ourselves to prayer, to preaching of the word, to, to caring for the people in the congregation in the spiritual sense. We need some people who are going to care for the physical needs of the congregation so that we have time to do that. You remember last week we talked about it. It takes time to do that. We just looked at, at the idea of teaching and how much time it takes to prepare in order to, to, to teach. And just you know, consider all the other things you do. And so the apostles said, look, we don't have time. Not enough time in the day. We need some people who are going to help us. And so they said, you guys, the congregation, appoint some people. And that's exactly what the congregation does. They go and they, they appoint some people who meet these qualifications, the qualifications we're going to look at in a moment. And they bring them and set them before the, the deacons, I mean, before the elders. And they appoint them as deacons over the church so that they might then serve the church. And as they serve the, the congregation, as they serve the physical needs of the congregation, it freed up the apostles to continue to serve the church uh, spiritually, to teach God's word. And notice what happens in verse 7. It says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And so here we see several things occurring. We see unity is taking place. These people are distributing the, the food in the, in the right way. And so what, caused, what was possibly going to cause this church split kind of goes away. Everybody's being taken care of. Everybody's being taken care of fairly. There's, the church is unified. The church has taught the word of God. And so there's spiritual growth that occurs within the people. And then there's also physical growth that occurs, right? I mean, it says... And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And not only that, but the church acted as a witness to the world. You see here, at the very end, don't, don't miss the statement, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The Jewish priests became obedient to the faith. They came into the church. And God blessed the church because the church operated in the way that, that he had designed for the church to operate. And that's what happened in the first church. But, you know, th this isn't just a story, right? Through this episode, we learn what the role of deacon is. And so first, we see that deacons act as shock absorbers. Now, my freshman year in college, my dad, before I went, went to college, he bought me a new car. I was driving this really old car that was about to break down, and he said, I'm going to get you a different car. And so he bought me a 1996 Toyota Camry. This car was three years old when I got it. So I graduated in 1999. You guys can do the math on how old I am. I drove that car for 10 years. Now, when I got the car, it was in, it was in great shape. I mean, it, it was great. It worked great. Now, as you can imagine, over the years, the parts that they eventually began to wear out on this car. And one of the things that ended up going bad uh, was the shocks. And so I, I'd be riding down the road, and, and any time, you know, I hit a bump, uh, that, that car would, you know, it'd scrape against the road, or, or sometimes it would just really bump the road, or sometimes it would crash really hard into the road, depending on how big this bump is that I would hit. And my friends who would ride with me during that time would inevitably, when that occurred, they'd say, man, 
that, that's not good. You need some new shocks. And I'd say, yeah, yeah, I know, I, I, I know, I know, I need some new shocks, but I just really don't want to spend the money on it because I know that I need to get a new car. This car is 10 years old, and I don't want to pour any more money into this car. Now, in a similar way, that's what, that's what deacons are supposed to do. Deacons are supposed to act as shock absorbers who you know, absorb the bumps and the potholes and, and the dips that inevitably occur in a church so that it can operate smoothly and so that it will be in unity. And unity is really the key here. One way they promote unity is through administration. They make sure that, that everything is, is handled fairly and orderly. They make sure that everything is handled timely. Uh, that one group is not given more privilege than another, that, that people have what they need in order to do ministry, that everyone is well taken care of. So they act as shock absorbers through proper administration, what brings unity to the church. Another way that they act as shock absorbers to promote unity is through conversation, right? As deacons are serving alongside other people in the church, inevitably they're going to hear you know, some people grumbling. They're going to hear some dissension. They're going to hear of some disunity in the church. And that's a great opportunity for them to begin to talk to people about what is happening there. You see, the last thing that we want is for disunity to occur in our church. It brings shame on the name of Christ when we fight with one another. It hinders our mission to make disciples. It causes church splits and it tarnishes the name of the church in the community. And so the last thing that we want in the church is disunity, which is... One reason that we have deacons to help promote unity by acting as shock absorbers through administration and through conversation. Along with acting as shock absorbers, we also see that deacons are servants. You know, at the age of 18, my mom was diagnosed with scleroderma. Scleroderma is an autoimmune disease which progressively gets worse over time. There's, there's no cure for it at all. And it ultimately, you know, took my mom's life. But when I was in middle school, her condition worsened to the fact that she really couldn't care for us that well on a day-to-day -day basis. And so my grandma ended up moving in with us. You know, my mom sold her house, my grandma sold her house, and we moved to another house. We bought a new house, and we all moved in together. And, and my mom, you know, I mean, my grandma took care of us. She performed some of the duties that, that my mom could not do. She would cook and she would clean and she would do the grocery shopping and she would even pick us up from school. And by doing those things, she served us or, or you could say she deaconed. And that's exactly what a deacon is. They are servants. In fact, when you work through the New Testament, you'll find that the word for deacon, the Greek word for deacon, which is diakonos, is used not only to refer to the office of deacon, but, but it's primarily used to refer to servants and ministers and attendants. And then when you look at this, this word in, in the verb form, you see it means to serve, to minister, to attend, to provide, to, to help. And that's exactly what deacons do. They, they serve the church. They make sure that its physical needs are met, just like my grandma made sure that our physical needs are met. Just like these men here in Acts chapter 6 made sure that the physical needs of the church were being met. That, that's what deacons do. And when they do that, they end up freeing up the pastor so that they might be able to do their work. So that they might be able to devote themselves to ministering the word of God. To, to teaching and to studying and, and to meeting with people. To counseling, to shepherding. And so we see then that deacons are servants. 
They serve the church physically, and, and really you could say that deacons serve the church spiritually by freeing up the pastors so that they can then focus on some of the spiritual matters that are happening in the church. But here's the thing, deacons are not to be the only servants. You know, just like we talked about last week, you don't hire a pastor and expect them to do all the ministry in the church, right? Ephesians chapter 4. What is the pastor to do? He is to equip the church for the work of ministry. That doesn't mean that the pastor doesn't minister. Just like it doesn't mean that deacons don't serve. But what it does mean is that deacons, they lead out in serving. So, so you don't just, you know, a couple once a year or whenever, you know, we have deacon selection around here. You don't just select deacons and then say, great, we, we've got our servants for another year or two. And so we burn those guys out and then we need to find some other people. No, we select people who meet the qualifications that we're about to look at to lead out in service so that they might be able to bring other people alongside of them to serve. And so deacons are not the only people who are supposed to serve. We're all to serve. We all must, as we've been talking about in the past, we all must go beyond the pew. It's just the deacons are the first ones to go beyond the pew and they're, they're pulling some of you guys out of the pew with them so you might step out and serve as well. Now, if you're having problem, you know, being motivated to serve, let me encourage you to remember that, that Jesus served you. Remember how he served you through his death we are able to experience life. We are able to experience the blessings of being a part of God's family. And I don't bring that up to guilt you into serving, right? I mean, we, we, Jesus doesn't expect us to pay him back. We can never pay Jesus back. God doesn't want that. Instead, God wants you to serve him out of gratitude for what he has done. He wants you to want to serve him. Not as a way to pay him back, not as a way to get things, but just as a way to say thank you for all that you have done for me. And so if you're having trouble serving, think about Jesus. Think about the way that he has served you. Meditate on the gospel. Think about the fact that you are a child of God and you get to serve the almighty creator, sovereign God of this universe. He allows you to serve people in his church, in his community, in his world, and he uses you to do that. So think about that if you have trouble serving. And so we see that deacons act as shock absorbers by promoting unity and servants by serving the physical needs of the church, even the spiritual needs of the church, by freeing up the pastors or the elders to do their job. This is why we need deacons. This is why this office is an important office. This is why a person should strive to be a deacon. But what do deacons look like? In other words, what quality should they be possessed? How do we know if someone is qualified to be a deacon? Well, if we're going to strive to be deacons, if we're going to select deacons, we've got to know what we're looking for. We've got to know the qualities that we need to look for in a person. And so what do deacons look like? Well, this is where 1 Timothy chapter 3 begins to help us. So look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to Begin down in verse 8. Paul begins this list of qualifications. He's really just listing out qualifications. He's already given us the qualifications for overseers or elders or pastors. You know, those names can be interchangeable. So he's, he's given us those qualifications already. Then he comes down to verse 8, and he begins to give us the qualifications for a deacon. He says, deacons, likewise, must be dignified. 
Now, dignified means that, that deacons are those who are worthy of respect, which, which naturally raises the question, well, well, what is it that causes a deacon to be worthy of respect? Well, let me just say, it shouldn't be based on their social status. It shouldn't be based on their popularity with the people. It shouldn't be based on their wealth. It shouldn't be based on whether they're a good business person or not. Instead, a person who is worthy of respect is a person who lives in accordance with God's word. They are people who want to know. They are people who want to follow God's will for their life. That's what makes them worthy of respect. Now, admittedly, that, that, that's pretty general, right? Somebody who wants to know and somebody who wants to live according to God's will. That is pretty general. And, and I believe in, 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 in some sense it's meant to be. You know, Paul, I believe, is using this word dignified much like he is using the word above in verse 1 or in verse, uh, in verse 2 when he talks about an overseer and he says they must be above reproach. He's using it as a header word. You know, that word above reproach then is answered. You know, what does it mean to be above reproach as you work through the rest of the qualifications? The same thing I believe here with deacons. What does it mean for them to be dignified? Well, as you work through the rest of the qualifications, you see what does it mean for someone to be dignified? What does it mean for somebody to be worthy of respect? And so, specifically, that's someone who is not double-tongued. When we talk about someone not being double-tongued, what, what idea comes to your mind? The idea that comes to my mind is somebody who literally has two tongues and they're talking out of both sides of their mouth. Now, now that, that's not literally happening, but that's figuratively what, what is happening. You've got somebody who, who goes and says one thing to one group over here, and then they turn right around and they go and they say another thing to another group over here, and it's not the same thing. They're just saying whatever might serve them best, whatever might appease that group the best. They're double-tongued. Now, of course, this does not promote unity. When we talked about deacons are supposed to be promoting unity. Of course, this does not promote somebody who is going to be trustworthy. Deacons need to be people who are trustworthy because you're, you're appointing them to serve the congregation. And so a deacon cannot be someone who is double-tongued. Right? Well, what they say to one group, they've got to say to another group. Next, if we're going to be worthy of respect, we, we learn in verse 8 that they're not to be addicted to much wine. They're not to be addicted to much wine. Now, if we read this verse carefully, we see, and I know this can be controversial, especially in the Baptist church, but we see that this does not outright prohibit a deacon from drinking alcohol. Instead, it means that he is not given too much wine. And what that means is that he is not dependent on it. It's not something that he needs. While Paul brings up the idea of alcohol here, I think we can, we can apply this to things other than alcohol. We can apply this to drugs. We can apply this to entertainment. We can apply this to sex. It can run the whole gamut of things that you might be addicted to. But remember here, these are character qualities. Paul is looking and Paul is dealing with the person's heart and he's trying to give us qualities so that we might be able to look at their heart as well and say, what is this person all about? And the last thing that we want to do is appoint a deacon who is addicted to something, somebody who is running after something other than Christ. And so it's not about whether this person has ever drank alcohol or not. It's about where are their affections? What are they given to? Well, what drives them? Where do they go when they face trouble and difficulty in their life? 
Are they running to the bottle? Are they running to drugs? Are they running to, to Netflix? Are they sit on the couch and binge, binge, binge watch that all weekend because they just got to have an escape? Are they running to sex? Or are they running to Christ? That's what Paul is saying here. Where do they run when times get difficult? What are they given to? Who is controlling them? Who is dominating them? And it better be Christ. Now, if we move on, we learn in verse 8 that a person who is dignified cannot be greedy for dishonest gain. Here, Paul is dealing with materialism. Paul is dealing with the hunger for power. And he says, look, you don't want to appoint somebody who, who all that drives them is money. All that drives them is power. All that drives them is business connections and what they can get out of this. Appoint somebody who is ready to serve, who's willing to get give up those things so that they might serve the church well. They're not a person who's going to take. They're a person who's going to give. And then in verse 9, we are told that they must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Basically, this means that they must believe the gospel. They must believe God's word. They're not, they're not given to false teaching. They live in accordance with the faith that they profess. And then Paul ends this section in verse 10 when he says, And let them also be tested. Then let them serve as deacons that they prove themselves blameless. Deacons are to be tested. We don't just let anybody be a deacon. Just because you've been a deacon at another church doesn't mean that you can come to our church and day one become a deacon. You've got to know the person. You've got to know their character. And it takes the time to know a person's character. And so we must test them. We, We must know them. We must ask them questions. We must observe their life and see whether these qualifications match up. Yes, you can ask, you can give them a questionnaire. And I think you should do that. But, but in order to know character, it's got to be observed over time. And so we need to make sure that we are doing that, that we are testing them. Now in verse 11, Paul makes a shift here. And this may be different. And this is where I was challenged this week. Paul makes a shift here in verse 11. And he says, Their wives... Likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, depending on what translation you are reading, the Greek word here, which, which is translated, or which is gune, is translated as wife, or it's translated as women. If you're reading the ESV, it's translated as wife. If you're reading the NASB, it's translated as Women. Now, I'm an avid supporter. I'm an avid reader of the ESV. That's what I preach out of every single week. This is my go-to translation. But in this instance, I've got to agree with the NASB here. And when you look at the word in the Greek, it literally means a woman of marriageable age. And what I believe the NASB is leaving room for here is for there to be women deacons. Now, I know that's a controversial subject, before you come and tar and feather me, before you come storm into my office tomorrow, before you, you know, you're ready to kick me out of the church, hear me out and let, let, me, let, me, let me tell you what's going on. Paul himself, who is the writer of 1 Timothy, 
The same apostle who, who a few verses earlier here in, in 2.11 says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. He says, and he provides us some qualifications for women to serve as deacons. He also recognizes in Romans 16.1 a woman deaconess. Phoebe is her name. In this text, Paul clearly provides us with some qualifications. He provides us with qualifications for women of marriageable age so that the church might examine them as well. And he begins this, qual- he begins this list in the same way that he begins the list in verse 8. He says, they must be dignified. And I think all of those terms after dignified in verse 8 that we have been spending time going through would apply here as well. I think he's importing that idea with that one word, dignified. And then he says, he adds some additional qualifications. He says, look, they're not to be slanderers. They're not to be people who are making damaging comments about another person. They're to be sober-minded. They're to be restrained and self-controlled. They are to be faithful in all things. They're to be trustworthy in everything that they do. And so he gives us some qualifications here, some, some qualities that we should look for in women. And when you compare this list to the, the, the list above for elders, and, and you see this list above for elders, he just says that an elder must be the husband of one wife. He doesn't provide an extra measure for their wives. He doesn't say, oh, by the way, your wives need to be this, 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 and this before you can serve as a deacon, as an elder, excuse me. But then he does that in this instance. And so I don't think that he's given two different levels for the wives. I think instead he is transitioning to talk about women as deacons. He's presenting a second role here. And then fourthly, practically, I mean, we need women to head service to women. They can serve women in a way that men can't serve them. And really in a way that men probably shouldn't be serving other women. And so for those reasons, I think that that Paul has shifted to talk about women as deacons. Now, with all of that being said, we've got to remember a few things here. We've got to remember that the role of deacon is supposed to be. They're supposed to act as shock absorbers. They're supposed to act as servants. They aren't pastors. They're not, they're not board members. They're not, they're not people who are directing the church. They're, they're not even people who are supposed to be caring for the church in a spiritual sense. They're people who are serving the church in a physical sense. And I believe that if a church is operating in that way, then women could serve as deacons. But here's the problem, and here's what you're probably thinking right now. Well, well our deacons don't serve like that. And historically, yes, at least in recent history, Baptist churches will not have deacons serve in that capacity. In my opinion, they serve more in a hybrid role. They act like elders on the one hand who are providing spiritual care and vision and oversight and all that stuff. And then on the other hand, they're also acting like servants. And so they serve in this hybrid role. Now, when you look at Scripture, I think those two roles are split. So that you have elders who are serving the congregation in a spiritual sense, pastors, whatever you want to call them. And then you have deacons who are serving the congregation in a physical sense. I don't think that many Baptist churches operate in that way. There are some that do, but I don't think there are a lot. 
And so I would say, if a church is not operating with that clear, distinct split, you know, where, where you have you know, elders and you have deacons who are performing these particular roles, you know, this is why we don't see women serving as deacons often. And, and really, in my, in my case, I wouldn't necessarily be comfortable having women serving as deacons unless that split is recognized because what we're doing is we are providing them uh, uh, we're, we're saying that they are acting as a shepherd over the congregation. And I think Scripture clearly tells us here, 1 Timothy chapter 2, that women are not supposed to act as shepherds over the congregation, at least over men. But I do think that we need women who are serving as deacons if there is this split that has, been, that has taken place. And particularly women who are serving other women. And they are serving them well. Because I think that, that we run into danger when we put men in, in a capacity where they are serving women when women should be serving women in that way. And I don't think that that's good for men. I don't think that's good for women. I don't think that's good for men's marriage or women's marriages or anything like that. And so I think if this split has occurred between the two roles, then this can take place. And I think that's what Paul is doing here. He sees a clear split between the qualifications of overseers in verses 1 through 7 and then the qualifications of deacons in 8 through 13. And so if that's taking place, then I think that we can have those roles. Now, with all that being said, that brings us to verse 12. And I believe here Paul shifts his focus back to men and he begins to deal with their family. And so let's look at this text. He says, Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. And so we see here that, that deacons are to manage their children. They're to manage their households well. Now, if someone is not able to manage their household well, how are they going to manage the church well? I mean, Acts chapter 6, they are put in administrative type roles. They're put in roles that, where they're creating unity in the congregation. If a person can't create unity in their house, if a person can't administer their house well, then they're not going to administer well in the church. And so this becomes a way for us to look at a person's character, to look at their qualities. And then lastly, we see the husband of one wife. Now, this literally means that this person is to be a one-woman man. That's what it says, the husband of one wife or a one-woman man. Now, this verse, again, has certainly sparked controversy over the years in the church. I don't believe that this means that a man needs to be married in order to be a deacon. Somebody could be single and be a deacon. And I don't believe this means that a man can't have been divorced and be a deacon. And so what I believe Paul is getting at is the heart of the matter again. Is this person faithful to their wife? Or are their eyes and affections always wandering? Right? I mean, just because you're married doesn't mean that you're faithful to your wife. You, you can be married just to be married in society because society says you have to be married. But you can be in adulterous affairs. You can always be looking out. You can be looking at pornography on the internet. You can be all, always checking out other women as they walk by. Just because you are married doesn't mean that you're a one-woman man. Your eyes could be all over the place. So is he faithful to his wife? Is he going to stick by his wife through thick and thin? Or when things get tough, is he just going to bolt out of there and say, you know what, this isn't for me? 
I can't take that anymore. I can't do that. I can't, I can't deal with that. Is his focus on his wife and her needs or his, is his focus somewhere else? Is he given to his work? Is he given to other things? Is his career more important than his wife? Is he a one-woman man? That's what I believe Paul is getting at with this qualification. Paul is drilling down to the heart of the matter. And Paul is saying, what is this person's heart? Where are they at? What is their character? That's what he's trying to expose. And if that's what Paul is doing, I believe that's what we need to do as well. And we also got to remember, what is the context that Paul is speaking into here? Somewhere along the line, and we, we, we imported this traditional idea that Paul is talking about a man who has never been divorced. But, but remember the context that Paul is speaking into. These are people who just became believers in the church. These are people who are living in a pagan society who go to the temple and have sex with prostitutes as a form of worship. These are people who, who just, you know, have all kinds of mistresses and, and they create, have all these adulterous affairs. And it's not a big deal. This is, this is how society operated back then. This is how things happened back then. This is the context into which Paul is speaking. And Paul is saying, look, if you are going to serve in this church, if you are going to be an overseer, if you're going to be an elder, if you're going to be a pastor, one woman man. Your eyes, your affections, you have to be given to your wife and that is it. No more going to the temple. No more going after other people. No more looking at other women. If you're going to be a deacon, the same thing. This is how God has designed it. God has designed from the beginning of creation that we would be one man and one woman together. And Paul says, if you are going to serve in the church, if you're going to lead out in the church, that's got to be you. That's got to be you. And that's what Paul is doing. Paul is speaking into this context in that way. These are the qualifications that Paul is giving us here. And so I think that we, we can't go beyond the qualifications that he's, go, he's given us. And I think that we have to be challenged by the qualifications that he's given us. I've been challenged this week by these qualifications. I hope that, that some of you may have been challenged today by some of these qualifications. You may disagree. I'd be happy to talk to you about that. But these are the qualities that Paul has given. These are the qualities that God has given in his word, that he has preserved in his word so that we might take these qualities and we might look for faithful people in the church to serve as deacons. And I believe if the church does that, if the church operates according to God's word, if they're selecting deacons based on these qualities, then we're going to be a church that operates well. We're going to be a church that, that is able to be on mission together because we have our pastors who are freed up to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We have people in the church being cared for in a physical sense very well. And we're going to be a church that is attractive to the community. We're going to be a church that is able to operate in unity together so that we might make disciple-making disciples. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.